everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. It's so good to be back together once again. Uh, I personally have loved being back in person for these past six weeks. It's so refreshing. I also want to welcome you if you're online. There's no, no shame that you're there. We're happy that you're joining us there. I know there's various reasons why we would be here or online. And so we're just, we're just excited to be together as a body of Christ gathering in person and online. What a gift it is to have this technology we do today to be able to gather in multiple places, but as one body. Uh, for you that don't know me, I'm Glenn. Apparently I'm a guest speaker, but I'm actually the pastor of youth and worship here, just trading places with Jonathan this morning. Uh, it is my privilege to get to share a message from the Word of God with you today. If you haven't been with us this fall, uh, we've been working through our One Anothering series. It's, uh, we've taken the 59 one another statements from the New Testament, and we've sort of squished them together and pulled out 10 common themes. And we're, over the fall, we're going to work through all 10 of these different one another statements. Now, I don't know that I've personally been more excited about a series since I've been a pastor here. If you've joined us at NAC for even one Sunday, I can almost guarantee that you've heard us talking about coming, not coming to church, but going and being the church being the body of Christ out in our world. And that's the reason I'm so excited for this series, because I feel like it's practically putting rubber to the road. You know, as as some of you may know, Brittany, my wife and I, uh, she's not here today, she's watching online. We welcomed our beautiful daughter Haven into the world about seven months ago. And as Brittany was pregnant, we were doing all sorts of preparing. We got, read all the books, we listened to podcasts, We did research to find the safest car seat and the best mattress and the best stroller. We had a couple amazing uh, baby showers where many of you showed up and just blessed us with incredible generosity to help us get what we needed. We set up the nursery. We'd spent lots of time with our nieces and our nephew, getting to know what the, the baby phase is like. See, on the theoretical side, we had prepared as well as we could. And we thought we were ready for when our daughter would arrive. My mentor said to me, Many times, he said, having a baby changes everything. And boy, was he right. See, though we had done everything we could possibly do to prepare, the reality of raising a newborn is night and day from theoretical. As best as we planned, our world was flipped upside down. It wasn't until our baby arrived that we could actually truly understand sleepless nights. We understood them in theory, but in practice, it's a whole different thing. How to sue the crying baby. All the things that we got for her, her car seat, her stroller, her swing, hated them all, didn't matter. All the research we did to get the best for her, it meant nothing if she didn't want to be in them. Even the simple luxuries of eating a meal together or going to bed when you want to go to bed, um, going to the bathroom when you want, going out for an evening, all these things are taken away from you. And believe me, you can never be fully prepared for some of the diaper explosions that you're going to get. There were some messes. In the same way, I feel like this whole series 
is kind of like that. See, we can talk to you week after week after week about theology and the theory and principles and working through books of the Bible. But at some point, you have to take the baby home and figure out how to raise a newborn. We have to actually take the theory from our Sunday morning and figure out what does it look like to actually go now and be the church that we've been talking about for so long. And that is exactly what this series is about. We're trying to help every one of us take the gospel message seriously and live it out in our day-to-day lives. So far, we've talked about loving one another, admonishing one another, and serving one another. And this week, we're going to tackle one of, if not the hardest ones to practically live out on this list. Any guesses? Forgiveness, yeah. Forgive one another. Now, before we get going, I know if you've been in church, probably for any period of time, you've heard a teaching on forgiveness, maybe a dozen. And that's for good reason, because uh, as you'll see, this is one of the most important defining attributes of what a believer should be. What I have to say this morning is probably not really going to be brand new to anybody. But my prayer and hope is that each of us would have our hearts open this morning and we'd be willing to hear all that Jesus wants us to hear. Again, it may seem like nothing new to you, but forgiveness is one of those topics that we need to keep talking about again and again because it's one of those things that will continuously raise its ugly head in our lives. I'm... I'm sure if I were to grab this open mic over here and walk around the room or ask you joining online to write in the comments, we could all tell stories of how we've been hurt. You would tell your story, someone else would jump in and go, yeah, I could top that. And then someone else would go, yep, I could trump that. See, we would hear such stories this morning that I'm sure it would leave all of us in the natural saying, there's no way, no how. There's no way that you should forgive them. But then what do we do with the New Testament call to forgive one another? We like the call to forgive one another when we're the one that's been hurt. But what about when we're on the offending side? When we've been wronged, one of the questions we often ask is how. How can I forgive them? I know I need to but I don't know how to. And the second question that often goes with that is, how many times do I have to forgive that moron? Now, I bet when I said that moron, somebody's face popped into your head. And the really funny thing is, your face may have popped into somebody's head. My face may have popped into somebody's head. Let's play a game. If I say, our Father who art in heaven, Thy kingdom come on earth. Many of us know the Lord's Prayer by heart, but I would venture to guess that very few of us know the verses that come right after it, the verses that the Lord's Prayer actually kind of hinges on. See, the Lord's Prayer is all about teaching us how to pray and have this sort of two-way communication with God. But then right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's a big deal. As followers of Christ, that is something we need to pay attention to. 
Now, before you think I'm up here preaching a works-based salvation, Jesus is not saying that you receive salvation as a gift, and now you have to go get on the work side, and it's all dependent on you, on how well you can do, on how hard you can work. That's not what he's saying at all. What Jesus is saying is that when the free gift of grace hits your heart, when you realize that your life was full of sin and you had nothing to offer God, but by a gift of grace, he extended forgiveness to you, that that undeserved forgiveness changes the very nature of your heart. If you boil it down, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is it means to be an imitator of Jesus. That as we choose to follow him, trust him, surrender to him, every day, every month, every year, we should be pursuing the heart of Jesus and looking more and more and acting more and more like Jesus lived out his day-to-day life. See, I don't think it's too crazy of me to suggest that one of the most defining attributes of Jesus, probably second to love, was his forgiveness. When Jesus healed people of their ailments, their physical ailments, more often than not, he says, your sins are forgiven, healing both the physical and their soul ailment. In Matthew 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven, but 77 times. See, in the culture of that day, the idea was that forgiving someone three times was sufficient to show a forgiving spirit. So Peter comes up to Jesus suggesting, hey, I could forgive this guy seven times. Look at me. Jesus looks to Peter and says, no, not seven times, 77 times, or some translations say 70 times, seven seven times. Either way, the number doesn't actually matter. What Jesus is saying is that there is no limit to the, the forgiveness that you should give to your brothers and sisters if they've wronged you. And then Jesus goes and he puts his money where his mouth is. While he is hanging on the cross in the very act of forgiving us, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus is very clearly very serious about forgiveness. And if we're going to be his disciples, we need to be serious about it too. Again, back to that verse at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, for if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And then Paul kind of echoes this call in what's going to be the core of our passage today in Ephesians 4, verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In a world that is saturated in bitterness and anger and unforgiveness towards one another, we've got some work to do to allow Jesus into that dark, painful place of unforgiveness and transform us to live out forgiveness the way that he lives it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you is a kind of cutesy verse on its own, but we really need to jump back into verse 17 to fully understand the context of where Paul is coming from. So let's go. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Now this I see and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is describing the stark difference between a life without Christ and a life with Christ. Without Christ, in the first half of that passage, we live in futility. Our hearts are hard towards the things of God and to his truth. We become callous or heartless, cold-hearted towards others. We give ourselves over to our fleshly desires, and we're caught up in greed and impurities. Not a pretty picture, if you ask me. Then Paul pivots and describes the believer's life with Christ in contrast. Life with Christ means that we live in real truth in Jesus, that we are able through the power of Jesus to take off our old, everything Paul just described, and instead put on the new, our new creation. That the Holy Spirit renews our minds and that we are able to become this new creation as we reflect Jesus and get to experience righteousness before God and holy living. Two very different realities. In the first, we're greedy, selfish, hard-hearted, living in futility. And then when we surrender to Jesus, all of that is transformed through Jesus' righteousness. And we are renewed and made into a new creation. It's from this context, from this contrast of the old and the new life, that Paul talks about forgiving one another's. If we continue in verse 25, it is a description of what this transformation actually looks like. What it practically looks like for the new believer to allow Jesus through the Holy Spirit to take our old messed up selves and make us a new creation. Let's read verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may... Uh, have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul gives us practical examples of the contrast from the old to the new. He says, put away falsehood and lies, and in its place, speak truth to your brothers and sisters. In your anger, don't sin. We've talked about this before. Being angry isn't inherently sinful. It's what you do with that anger. Stop stealing, but instead, work hard that you can share with those in need. Don't use corrupting or unwholesome talk or let gossip come from your mouth, but instead speak the truth that builds the other up and that is helpful and that gives grace. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then this verse here is where our theme comes from today. Let these harsh traits be removed, bitterness, wrath, anger, 
clamor, slander, malice. And in its place, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going to let you in on my personal life a little bit here. In the past couple months, I have started to try to eat healthier. When I was in my early 20s, I could literally eat anything I wanted, however much I wanted, and it never really affected me, at least outwardly. Inwardly, probably some stuff going on, but outwardly, didn't affect me. Actually, side story. The very first time I went to Brittany, my wife's house, when we were first dating, I went to her house with her parents and had dinner. They had made this big pot of pasta and sausage. And with the thought that at the end of the night, Glenn would take the leftovers home, this broke university student, he could use a nice, you know, warm, home-cooked meal. Well, when we got to the end of the dinner, there was nothing left. I had eaten every last bit of that meal. The pot was empty. And they were shocked. They could not believe how much filled me. Actually, I still wasn't full, which was even more shocking. Still to this day, at the end of every meal at my in-law's house, when everyone is finished eating, they take all the leftovers and they literally put it on my plate for me to finish. See, when Britt and I started dating, I think my parents' grocery bills started to go down, but my in-laws started to go up quite a bit. Yes, my dad likes that. Back to my point. Essentially, I was a bottomless pit. And it didn't affect me until it did. My metabolism has started slowing down, slowly, slowly started slowing down. And even though I'm a father now, I'm not really going after the 27-year-old dad bod look. So all this, to stay, all this to say, wow, I have started to make some changes in my diet. See, I used to keto, eat, oh my gosh. <laughs> Words. I used to eat a couple of fried eggs on white bagels every morning. And now I have fried eggs on whole wheat English muffins. And then I would have white buns with a couple slices of processed meat. Now I have chicken and quinoa wraps for lunch. Uh, I have a protein smoothie every morning. I never thought I would say that in my life. Instead of snacking on chips, I snack on peanuts and rice crackers and whatever. Here's my point. It wouldn't be enough for me to just stop eating the bad stuff. That's another kind of unhealthy. I had to start eating healthy stuff in its place. Paul is describing the same thing in his letter to the church of Ephesus. He's saying, the way that you're living is unhealthy, and Jesus has a better way for you, rather than becoming a spiritual dad bod. He says, let's get rid of the unhealthy things. Get rid of your bitterness, your wrath, your anger, your clamor, your slander, your malice. All those different words describe hostility and actions that destroy human relationships. Maybe you feel like those things aren't affecting you outwardly, but they're certainly going to start rotting your insides, and they're eventually going to seep out. But again, it's not as simple as just, well, stop being bitter. Stop slandering. You have to allow Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to begin to replace that bitterness, to replace that slander, to replace that malice with kindness, with tenderheartedness, and with forgiveness. Okay, so I think we can all agree now that we need to forgive one another, right? Forgiveness is a defining trait of what it looks like to be a believer in Christ. 
and its defining trait of putting off the old and putting on the new. But how do we do that? What does that actually look like? To answer that question, we're going to work through uh, the process, a, a process of forgiveness, with some really helpful steps that I've borrowed from a book called The Cure by John Lynch, Bruce McNichol, and Bill Thrall. I believe that the reason so many of us struggle with forgiveness is because we're actually missing the point and the heart behind forgiveness. See, the true intention of forgiveness was never that we would just oh, get over the pain, let go of the hurts, let go of our rights, stifle our feelings, and let the other person off the hook without receiving justice. Instead, Jesus' plan for forgiveness has always been boiled down to one word, trust. Do we trust God? Do we trust that he is with us? Do we trust that he is for us? Do we trust that he is fully and completely able? Do we trust that he never makes a mistake in your life? Do we trust that he is sovereign? Do we trust that he loves you more than you love yourself? Do we trust that there is absolutely nothing you or anyone else can do to damage his control? Here's my promise to you. If you trust Jesus, and if you work through these steps or steps similar to these with genuineness and your heart open to God, he will meet you there. He will be waiting for this moment to bring freedom, and he will listen to every word you have to say, and he will be right alongside you through all the pain and baggage that comes with it. All right, so let's go through these steps quickly. Step number one to get into a place of forgiveness we have to actually admit that something happened. It may sound silly, but in order to get to a place of forgiveness and for God to heal you, you have to start by recognizing that someone has sinned against you. Oftentimes we want to skip this step. Maybe you're too young to really understand what happened or remember what happened. Or maybe you have this fear of losing control in this relationship. And if you admit your pain, then they're going to flip it on you and make you the guilty one. Maybe you're trying to take the spiritual high road and decide that it shouldn't hurt you, so you just need to move on. And then you end up denying the reality of the hurt. But the reality is you can't forgive until you admit that you've been sinned against. Step two, you must get in touch with the consequences of the act done against you. More often than not, the consequences of sin are actually worse than the sin itself. You need to take a deep, intentional look at the effect the sin has had on you and how it's impacting your daily life. Have you experienced shame from it? Have you become fearful? Have you felt demeaned or devalued? Have you, were you manipulated or shunned? Were there relational effects? Did you lose credibility or access with friends? Was your marriage affected? Were your children affected or your co-workers affected? Did it affect your job? Did it affect your schooling, your income, your future? Did you lose your position of influence? Has it changed how you see yourself or your attitude towards love or trust or friendship or even God? This is hard work. 
And in order to understand the consequences of sin, you have to allow yourself to feel the pain of your responses. See, if you hold on to the sin that was committed against you, you're actually allowing it to define you. So take your time. This is hard work. Work through the various consequences that this sin has caused against you. This hard work will prepare you to forgive. Next step is to tell God exactly what happened. So you've admitted what's happened and you've addressed the consequences and worked through them. Now it's time to pour out your God, you pour out your heart to God and to tell him as best as you can exactly what happened to you. You may try to convince yourself that you don't do that kind of thing. Over emotional people do that, not me. You may think that going back and reliving it with God is essentially, oh, it's getting heavy. Is essentially you wallowing in it, but you would be wrong. What this looks like will be different for everyone. It may involve crying. It may involve silence. It may involve screaming. It may just run around the room and want to punch things. It may involve journaling. Whatever it is, the goal is to dig out every emotion and effect you've buried about the sin against you. Buried. I always say buried. Buried about the sin against you. Why there's a you in buried, I don't know. Why isn't it? English. Anyways, this is the mysterious beauty about this interaction with God. See, you're going to get to experience the truth of your relationship with God. That he cares more deeply and fully than even you do about your own hurt. And for the first time in a long time, you're going to feel heard and validated, known and safe. All right, step four, probably the hardest one. You must forgive the offender for your benefit. What? For your benefit? See, this, I believe, is the secret to forgiveness that we so often miss. We typically view forgiveness as letting the offender off the hook, that forgiveness is for them. You may have heard the quote, unforgiveness is like drinking your poison and expecting the other person to die. We expect that if we don't forgive someone, that it's going to affect them. But in reality, every time you refuse to forgive, you are adding more and more baggage to your life that you have to carry. This step is truly one of the most freeing, healing, practical expressions of God's power that you can experience on this side of eternity. God heals the bondage of your heart, which will eventually lead you to free the ones that have hurt you. But before you can get to this horizontal transaction of dealing with the person who hurt you, you have to deal with this vertical transaction with God. You begin by trusting God's character, strength, love, and protection, and you forgive the offender before God by placing the act that they've done and the consequences and the loss in his hands. It may help for you to imagine literally removing every effect of that sin off of your life and placing it onto God. This is a deep, beautiful moment of trusting God, that as you hand everything over, he will not mock you, he will not ignore you, he will not forget your pain. You are trusting that he will protect you. 
defend your heart, bring beauty from the hurt, and cleanse you. Here's going to be the challenging moment. Your human nature isn't going to want to let go. You may give over 99%, but refuse to give up that one. Because what if they get away with it? What if they never have to pay? What if they don't have to own up to what they've done? How else can I be sure that they're going to get what they deserve? If you hold on to that 1%, you're going to continue to live in unforgiveness and in the pain and the consequences of that act. And this is really where the trust that we talked about comes in. At this moment, you are fully trusting God. You are giving up your rights to decide what is best for that person and for yourself. And you are handing over your case to the only judge who can see the entire story and loves you both, both you and the offender, perfectly. This is the moment where you are putting everything on the line. This is my life, my pain, my reputation. But instead of holding on to it any longer, I am trusting you, Jesus. I am releasing my control and trusting your character, love, and power. And believe me, if you have done this authentically, surrendering it all, even that last 1%, and trusted Jesus with it, you will feel an incredible weight lifted off you. That was heavy. I think many of us have been carrying around that bag for years. We've added baggage with every passing moment of unforgiveness. It weighs you down and it prevents you from experiencing all that God has for you in your relationships. Now, the the question is, how can you know if you've actually forgiven someone? The answer, and you may not like it, the moment that you can offer that person your love again. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, you want me to what? Pastor, I can forgive them, but offer them love again? You have no idea what they did to me. If you knew how they hurt me, if you knew what they took from me, you would not expect me to love them again. Look, I understand the pushback, but I would humbly reply back to you that this is probably evidence that you're still holding on to unforgiveness. I'm not suggesting you have to forget some things you will never be able to forget. But through the healing power of our Lord Jesus Christ and work in your life, you can choose to love them again. See, this is actually the Christian ethic, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Love one another, just as I have loved you, so too love one another. That one another encapsulates everyone, even the ones that have hurt you, even the ones that have offended you, even the ones that have taken things from you. Paul actually echoes this call in the very next verse after calling us to forgive one another. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It will not be an easy road, but it will definitely be worth it to finally drop that baggage. All right, last step is you have to tell the offender that you've forgiven them for their sake, but only when they repent. 
Now, this isn't you refusing or withholding forgiveness. Again, you've already done that. You've done the forgiveness in your heart with God. You've done the forgiveness for them in your heart with God. Instead, this is allowing the offender to experience his own life-freeing repentance. Premature forgiveness will not free the other person from their offense or heal your relationship. God uses repentance to heal guilty hearts. So this may happen over a long period of time, over many conversations, but it creates an opportunity for a stronger, healthier, and more faithful relationship than maybe you had before the offense. If the offender offers repentance, you are to forgive with the goal of restoration, not just resolving a conflict. Resolving a conflict is trying to deal with the problem, but there's probably not love towards them. Restoration, resolution is seeking a wholer picture of resolution where there's a resolved conflict and a resolved relationship. Their repentance is not going to heal your heart because that heart healing will have already taken place with God beforehand. But their repentance will prepare the way for healing and restoration to take place in your relationship. Now, all of this said, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Forgiveness does not directly equal trust. I'm sure that some of you have been victims of horrible, despicable sins. I'm sure some of you have been hurt and broken and had things taken from you that I can't even fathom or begin to understand. Forgiveness does not inherently require you to trust the other person again. The reality is that forgiveness and trust are separate issues. We all know that trust is easily broken and very slowly restored. And sometimes it can never fully recover. But if there is a genuine forgiveness before God and the offender, and genuine repentance from the offender, there is now a hope for renewed trust and for renewed relationship. There is no mandate or guarantee that that renewed trust will ever be achieved, though. At the end of it all, it ultimately doesn't matter whether you ever receive an apology or not, whether they ever repent to you or not, or whether you receive the justice you deserve and they, the consequences they deserve. The hard work of forgiveness isn't ultimately about any of those things. Forgiveness is about setting your heart free, seeking reconciliation and forgiving others because Christ has forgiven you. Remember what I said earlier. We can only be able to truly experience forgiveness when we can trust Jesus. You are no longer responsible for the outcome, for seeking judgment and receiving justice. When you choose to trust Jesus, you are choosing to submit the situation to his perfect will. You may not even see or understand the full outcome of, on this side of eternity, but our perfect heavenly father knows the situation perfectly and uses it in his perfect plan. We're going to move into a time of communion, which Jonathan is going to walk through with us, and it's going to, it's going to look a little different than we're used to. But as we spend some time in communion, I just want us all to reflect on the last part of our passage today, that we are to forgive one another as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, all we have to do is look to the cross of Jesus to see how serious he is about forgiveness. 
every single sin we ever committed is ultimately a sin against Jesus. And instead of him getting his justice that he was fully within his right to get, instead of punishing us for our sins and giving us consequences for the endless ways we have hurt him, instead of refusing to do anything until we first own up our sins, Jesus, perfect in every possible way, being in very nature God, not only leaves behind all that he deserved from us, but instead he takes the weight and the curse of our sins onto himself and pays the price. That is why we join in communion together, because the creator and the savior of the world put on flesh and died for the very sins that he deserved justice for. So again, I don't know the hurts that you've experienced. I know that some of you have been sinned against far worse than I have. But what I do know is that Jesus, the son of God, died on your behalf so that he could perfectly and completely forgive you for all of your sin. And now we are called to forgive one another as God in Christ first forgave us. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, I encourage you to evaluate your life. Where are you living in unforgiveness? Who has hurt you in the deepest place imaginable? And what is holding you back from that forgiveness? My encouragement is that you would let Jesus take control. Trust him. Let go of your unforgiveness. Drop the baggage that is rotting your life from the inside out. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and experienced the free gift of grace and freedom over your life, I encourage you, let the words of this next song wash over you. Jesus is calling you in. He's calling you home. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That offer is for every single one of us today. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the blood of Jesus is ready to cover over your entire life and welcome you into the family. Let's sing.